From the hidden secrets of our backyards to the realities of the third world, we take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. The Point Podcast is brought to you by ThePoint.life, offering healthcare, entrepreneurship, and education both domestically and internationally. Visit ThePoint.life to find out how you can get involved. How do we disrupt systems that protect, promote, and perpetuate social inequality? That is not a small task or an easy thing to even discuss, but if we're serious about bringing social justice to the surface, it's a conversation that we must have, and not just today, but ongoing. And here to lead us in that conversation is Dr. Sean Duncan. He's a director of training and consulting division for an impressive group called FCS, or Focused Community Strategies, which was originally started by Dr. Lupton, who is best known for the book Toxic Charity. Sean is a TEDx speaker, a trainer, a consultant, and honestly, just one of those people you could learn something new from every day. So take a deep dive with me today and our new friend and longtime ally, Dr. Sean. Thank you for taking the time to meet with Absolutely. me today. Yeah. And you are not from Atlanta, but you kind of have a Southern accent. Yeah, I'm from Nashville okay. uh, and moved to Atlanta in 2005. So this has been home since then. Okay. And then how did you get to Atlanta? Yeah, just job opportunity. I was teaching and working and doing various things in Nashville and had no real intent to move, but just had an opportunity to come this way and made the decision and made the move. And the city has left a profound impact on my life. And mm -hmm. as career has evolved and changed over the course of that, I guess, 17 years, I've kind of always known like, this is where I need to be. This is the place I need to be. Kind of what my vocation looks like in that can take lots of different shapes, but there's something about being here that couldn't let mm -hmm. go of. I love that. And you have your master's in divinity. Is that right? Or your do. doctorate? Both. I'm um, just oh, wow. for loans and punishment. So, both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so when you originally thought about like going into that field of work, I guess, was there this like idea of like social justice behind it? Or were you wanting to be a pastor? How did this come about? I feel like the thread of my professional life has been, I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up, essentially. And I've kind of always known that I wanted to be a part of something that was creating meaningful change in the world, but have been pretty open to like, I really don't care what that looks like, right? Like even the job that brought me to Atlanta was with a congregation and like, I wasn't looking for that. Somebody gave them my name and they called and I'm like, okay. And the more I kind of explored it, like the discernment process was a bit more like, this was the place that I like do feel like is the next best step for my life. And what does it look like to live and make home and family in this place? And so, yeah, there was never a real strong sense of like, this is the very specific career path I want to be in, but I knew I wanted to leverage just deep senses of conviction and meaning and how to leverage that for the sake of good happening in our world and had just tried to find various ways to make that happen. Yeah, well, it's probably best because in the nonprofit world, 
you wear many hats. Oh my gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. If you go in with like a corporate mindset of like, this is my job title and this is the job description, like that doesn't really play out. Oh, I don't do that. Yes, you do. Because we all, (laughs) yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So then how did you get connected to focused community strategies? Yeah. So it didn't take long being on the ground here before I realized the world I'd moved into was maybe just a couple hundred miles away from the world I was in, but it might as well be like a couple galaxies away. And I began to kind of say, well, what does this mean, right? If this is what my neighborhood looks like. And these are the people literally from around the world who've been resettled into this place. Like, what does my life look like in the midst of all that? Um, mm-hmm. What's the response? And so just become like, one threw myself in, like not really knowing what it would mean or what to do or how, but just knew like what I did know is I had to jump in, right? Had to, mm-hmm. had to make sense of all of it. And now that just started like seeking who else is in this space and can speak into it, some solidarity, some partnerships, friendship and all of this. And, and thankfully, you know, in this area, there are lots of really amazing leaders and neighbors and friends that are doing such good and important work. And the more I kind of leaned into that in the first couple of years being here, I began to just read and enter these different books and conversations. And in all of that, became aware of this organization called Focus Community Strategies, became aware of their founder, Robert Lubden, and some books he'd written. This is even, he'd written some stuff before Toxic Charity, which is the one that's the most well-known. So I was reading some of the earlier stuff, which is really kind of the seeds of what became Toxic Charity. And it was one of those things where I was just like, oh man, this puts to words so much of my dis-ease about what is going on that there's not a lack of compassion necessarily or a lack of generosity, but there is a lack of solidarity. There's a lack of proximity. There's a lack of impact that's actually happening. And yeah, so really just was like kind of more just showing up wherever I could, like just kind of grasping for for help, for guidance, for companionship and partnership. And FCS became one of those really crucial friends in the journey. So it wasn't a job initially. It was just people who were in the same city doing the similar kind of work and just kind of walking alongside with them and yeah, just developing those relationships. Yeah. Again, perfect for the nonprofit lifestyle of just like figuring out like who's doing what. And I think like when we kind of like hit the ground and we start, yeah, meeting our neighbors and like being involved in people's lives, then we start to see like, wait a second, like Mm -hmm. the way we were approaching things, like maybe isn't the best way to do things. So yeah. Yeah, you're in. Is it South Atlanta? Yes, FCS has been working in neighborhoods in Atlanta for you know about 45 years at this point. Currently, our organization is in a neighborhood called Historic South Atlanta, right. uh, which is where we've been doing development work for the last 20 years. It's a neighborhood that's just a about a mile or two south of the Capitol Building downtown. It's a neighborhood that was really birthed from an HBCU, Clark College and Gammon Theological Seminary. So a lot of just really rich and beautiful history to that neighborhood and been doing the development partnership work there since 2001. Yeah, amazing. And so tell us about, I mean, you guys do so many things. You have a coffee shop, you have a grocery store. There's all kinds of ways that you've been able to walk alongside people in the community, seek out the needs. So tell us a bit about like the theories that go into it. Like what, yeah, yeah. what are you applying and, and yeah. how does it work? Yeah. So for FCS, maybe a way to say it is that we are more driven by proximity and process than we are by product. Okay. So what I mean is there's a lot of things that we do that are major 
expensive, significant, long-term development-oriented projects, not just like distributing resources, like mixed income housing, business development, economic development. There's a lot of big work that we're doing. And so sometimes people will see those things and say, well, how can I replicate that thing where we are? Which sometimes can be a great thing. But for the most part, we would say the product that we've created is a result of process and proximity, right? Because half of our staff live in the neighborhood, multiple of our board members do, that this is in the businesses we've created, majority of the employees are from within the neighborhood. Like Mm -hmm. that level of proximity drives our work, right? And our commitment to a really healthy process of understanding the neighborhood at a holistic level, not just at a needs level, and also not just at a assets level, right? But really trying to look at a comprehensive narrative of a neighborhood and out of that, building the kind of strategies that are going to move the needle for the neighborhood, right? We're not just thinking about how does our organization succeed, but how does this neighborhood become a place of equity and opportunity and thriving? And how do we do our strategies around that? So we do a ton of work in housing. Uh, We do a ton of work in economic development. We do a whole lot of neighborhood engagement partnerships that are kind of the least visible because it's not a lot of bricks and sticks, but it really Mm -hmm. is a connective tissue that drives kind of all that we are. So it is a holistic neighborhood development is the model, but it really is more about process than anything else. Yeah, no, that's so well said. I can't tell you how many times like I would be in Haiti and we'd have these like massive like government organizations who are like, we have this like great thing that's working in Ethiopia. We're going to bring it over here. And we're just like, oh man, this is not going to work. And so you're right. I I love like that way you think about that. So you gave a TED talk and you talked about this fictional organization, the Cold Water Collective. And I feel like the way that you describe that, like gives a really good foundation to how you apply what you're doing now. Can you walk us through a bit of that? Yeah. So the story kind of is this fable, this idea that, you know, someone becomes aware that there's a lot of people in their city who live with empty buckets, right? And this good hearted person is aware that they're living their lives with a very full bucket, right? And saying, well, if I've got a full bucket and I've got excess, I should go pour out of my bucket into somebody else's, right? And quickly this grows because there's so many empty buckets, right? If you're paying attention, there's a lot of empty buckets in your city, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're going around pouring from their bucket pretty frequently. And before long, like, hey, I got lots of friends who have lots of very full buckets. And so they gather them together. That's where they form this cold water collective. We're going to take these full buckets of water that we live daily with, and we're going to carry them all over the city to all these different locations and have this growing nonprofit ministry called the Cold Water Collective that just keeps pouring from our buckets to their buckets constantly. And then the kind of the turn of the story is at the end where one of the residents of the receiving community just asks the question, well, how come after all these years, you keep pouring from your bucket, but it stays full Mm -hmm. and mine stays empty, Mm -hmm. right? No matter how many hours and dollars and resources are poured, at the end of the day, this community's buckets pretty much stay empty and that community's buckets stay Um. full. And so that kind of question is, I think, the the unsettling that drives people, like not just people in our organization, but a lot of people who see what's happening. I mean, what we'll often say is there's not a lack of generosity in most cities, but there is a lack of impact, right? Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. yeah, and so that for us is kind of a brief fable of sorts to illustrate what's the unintended consequences of our good intent. So mm-hmm. what do you think is happening in the church today? Like, do you think that we're starting to catch on and say like, 
okay, the way we've been doing things for a while is really not, not working. Mm. It has been working. Mm. Everybody's buckets are still empty. Ours are still full. Or do you think like we're still far behind and we have a lot of catching up to do? Yeah. I mean, I definitely would say the conversation has shifted in the last 10 years. I mean, I remember, you know, 10 years ago, as I was kind of getting more immersed into this, like, I think I was like, right out of college about 20 years ago, like started kind of leaning into it, didn't know what kind of was going on. And that kind of had these evolutionary stumbling steps forward and like really getting pretty serious about it about 10 years ago. And I can remember instances where just raising some of these questions would like really tick people off, right? Yeah, yeah. They're immediately kind of defensive, like, For sure. like Dang it. you know, like, I feel like I'm a decent teacher and I can compellingly like guide some dialogue, but you could kind of see this resistance. But um, I mean, I definitely see that like the dialogue has shifted. I think there's enough people who are writing about it and talking about it across the social and theological perspective that people are talking about this in ways they haven't. So I think there's definitely an arc that we've been on in the last decade or so. You know, I would say, however, when I hear people who are starting to get it, it's like they're getting it at a fairly surface level, which sometimes can be even more dangerous than not even thinking about it at all, if that makes sense. Like, like the all I did, like, you know enough to be dangerous. Like, you may generally know how that power tool works, but you should wait before you lose your fingers, right? So like, right. and it's with some frequency, I get emails like, hey, we've read the book. We really believe in that. And then when they start right. unfolding what they're thinking, we're like, ooh, that's not what we're saying. Wait, give me an example. Like, Yeah. So where I think some people boil it down to that the problem is we're just giving away things for free with no expectations. Okay. Uh, but the problem is just it's about entitlements or dependencies. And we would say, yeah, like just making people, quote, earn it or work for it isn't going to fix things because the fundamental problem has a lot more to do with power and proximity than it does about giving away free stuff or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when people hear, we like we contrast the idea of relief versus development. Like relief yeah. is just giving away things to meet some emergency needs. Development is about long-term solutions. Here's the deal. Like relief can be healthy and it can be toxic. Mm -hmm. Development can be healthy and it can be toxic. So some of the people who are trying to get rid of these like free giveaway, quote, toxic charities. Yeah end up replacing them with some pretty paternalistic toxicity, right? Interesting. They never dealt with the fundamental problem was this yeah. like us, them power imbalance, this lack yeah. of proximity, this lack of partnership that like, just because they now have to earn the resources that you want to give away, like you didn't change anything. Like you're now their boss instead of their like charity, right? Like yeah. that's not yeah. what we're looking for. And so I think the move towards partnership and proximity and sharing power and ability and access, like, that's what we want to move towards and not just stop giving things away for free. Like that may or may not mm. change anything, you know? Yeah, no, that's well said. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that. And I think you said too, like we have to start thinking about systems and not symptoms. Yeah. And, you know, and like, so with the idea of holistic neighborhood development, part of the reason we do that is so a foundational kind of driving lens maybe for us is that, that there's this indicator that is related to how long you'll live, how many economic mobility opportunities you'll have, your educational outcomes, your mental and physical health, all of these indicators that you would say, these are all measures of a healthy, safe, good, meaningful life. Mm -hmm. Here's one factor that changes all of those. 
and it's where you grow up. It's where you're from. It's a neighborhood you live in, right? And so places become the ecosystem mm. that shape the outcomes of our lives, right? And so if I just throw a few resources into an ecosystem, like, okay, great. You got a better job with a little bit better of income, but if a dozen other of those systems aren't changing, you're mm-hmm. still going to be living in a traumatic environment, right? Yes. And so for us, like just looking at like, oh, people, they're food insecure. They need more food or whatever. Like it's just thinking about the ecosystem is producing these unhealthy symptoms that we might call them, right? And we're not going like, well, what could we do so the ecosystem is healthy and working? Yeah, yeah. It's like kind of like taking, you know, like heavy ibuprofen because you've got an injury that you're not actually addressing, right? And yeah. so- we're trying to say there are things that have been going on for decades and decades that have created. I mean, when you look, when you think about poverty in your city, you go, oh, mm-hmm. I think about that neighborhood or that street or that block because we've deliberately for generations, we have segregated and segmented and concentrated poverty into certain areas. Yeah. We've allowed systems to protect and promote and perpetuate this economic and social inequality. And so just throwing some resources over at that and fundamentally gonna, I mean, it may ease people's daily burden, but if you want to change things, we've got to think about what are the systems that have created it, are protecting it, are promoting it, perpetuating it. And how do we start thinking about disrupting that so that to live here means to grow into opportunity and access. And like, and your your income level is one of a hundred things, right? That's going to determine that those kind of things. And Mm -hmm. yeah, so- Wait, so what do we do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one is be willing to accept that it's really complex and it's long term. Yeah. And I get it. Like we have learned to dramatize and highlight the compassionate individual who made a difference. Mm-hmm. Because one of the kind of the ethos of American culture is like the lone hero, mm-hmm. right? Lone individual who made the difference, who did the thing, right? And I think that narrative is more helpful than harmful in all of this. Because like, as much as I would say, every individual person needs to be a compassionate and generous and others centered person, but that is not going to be enough, right? That if we want to see long-term place-based, right? Change, the first thing is like, we've got to be committed to those places, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And not just an occasional hurt, but the long-term change in those places. Mm-hmm. And entering into those places, how do we then begin to form the kinds of partnerships that can move the needle? And it's taken us generations to get where we are, and it's going to take us generations to get out of it, right? So like, um, well, we've got to commit to a game that's going to outlive us, right? Like any notion I have that I'm going to, you know... You're going to change the world. You're going to make a difference. Right. Like well, it's sort of right. Like I think there's a bit of like, and I think it's freeing to be honest with you. There's a bit of humility to say my life matters. The contributions I make do matter, but they're one piece of a puzzle that's going to outlive me. Yeah. But I still want to be a part of it. I yeah. want to be part of something that's going to bring about generational change to problems that have been generations in the making. Right. Yeah. And at some level, that may like knock us off the pedestal of, of being these great change makers, but at some level, it's also freeing. Like all this doesn't yeah. land on my shoulders, right? Like I could retire to, I mean, I'm not wealthy enough to retire tomorrow, but I could, and you know what? Mm-hmm. It's okay, right? Like I have the opportunity to participate yeah, with or without me, right? There are people who are committing to be in this journey together. And I just want to be a part of that, right? So I think it's this long arc place-based, really deep dive thing that we've got to be willing to commit to to see the kind of change that we, we really need. Yeah, that that's good. What, um, 
we can keep this offline if it's not appropriate, but what's it like as a white person? How do you do that mm -hmm. right now? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think, and I don't, it doesn't have to remain offline. I'm very comfortable with this. I think it requires, well, I'd say this to my fellow majority culture folk, especially the straight white males among us, like myself, this has implications for the hard work you have to do on yourself. If this is just about work you want to do to, for, among others to create some sort of like change out in the world, like that's not going to be enough. Like this is soul work, right? This is emotional work, probably going to require some therapy work, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that just being burdened by the suffering and injustice of the world isn't enough. Like being aware of your own kind of culture mm -hmm. and identity yeah. and contribution to these things. It would be way easier to be the lone individual who does the good deed yeah. and yeah. then kind of retreats back into their space. For but sure. yeah, it's really hard and it's really, really complicated. Yeah. And there's like, and I think for some of my white friends and allies, I think one of the missteps that gets made is that they think it's kind of a binary. I'm either like one of the good ones who's an ally to yeah. community of color, or I'm one of the bad ones who's against them. Mm -hmm. There's so many more options <laughs> than that, mm -hmm. uh, that the reality is like, even if you are motivated by healthy and good things, even though you're really committed, you're still going to be really wrong in really significant yeah. ways. And you're still going to yeah. inadvertently create hurt that you didn't mean because you just carry with you things you're not even aware of. And that, and like, and if you're going to get easily offended that someone's unhappy with you because I'm one of the good ones and someone should like, Mm -hmm. This probably isn't for you. You're going to have to be willing to own it, feel it, do some hard internal soul searching, make a number of apologies, kind of live into that. And I think it's just, um, there's no way to escape the internal stuff you have to do to be a part of this for the long haul. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. It's almost like there's a spectrum and like we mm -hmm. move throughout that spectrum. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it definitely takes being honest with yourself and... Yeah a lot of hard internal mm -hmm. conversations. Mm -hmm. You're right. I want to talk about some of the projects that you guys are doing and like including the grocery store and the coffee shop and how that came about. Because I think that's pretty cool. And I think it probably relates back to what you're talking about, about proximity and like living there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Out like, oh, yeah. there's actually not a freaking grocery store. Like, yeah. 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 So how did that come about? Yes, yeah, so to specifically like think about the grocery store, I think some really crucial values of FCS emerge when you think about like that one story in a microcosm, it really reflects like culture and practices, principles of FCS. You know, one of them is that the, the, the neighborhood has to be a higher commitment than the organization. Mm. So the same yeah. retail space that the grocery store inhabits currently used to host one of our kind of legacy programs that our founder wrote about in some of his books, right? Uh -huh. And it was a compelling story. And a lot of people donated because of this like legacy program. But we were realizing that over time, that legacy program was no longer needed and not even really healthy anymore. Uh -huh. Now it started as healthy and good and necessary, but neighborhoods change, people change, communities change, and, and they should if we're, if we're yeah. doing good work. Yeah. And so we had to figure out, all right, this is no longer a dignifying, healthy, good thing for our mm. neighborhood. What do we do about that? Right. And so, you know, 
Principle number one, well, neighborhood above organization. We're not going to just do what's slick or sexy or compelling to donors. We're not going to do what's easy for us. We're going to figure out, number one, let's check the pulse of neighborhood, right? Let's, let's listen deeply to people. Let's look at this ecosystem, right? And it became clear, right, through that whole process that like access, easy access to affordable, healthy groceries was beyond our neighborhood. Food desert is the common word for that, yeah, right? Um, and we're like, well, we're looking around on our staff. Nobody here is a, like one guy worked at Kroger Bag and Groceries when he was 15, but that's it. Yeah, right. <laughs> of our so one of our other principles is like, I don't care if you're compassionate about it, but if you don't have the competency to do it, then you need to back away and let somebody else do it. Right. So just like, I feel called to, I don't care if your heart's burdened by it. If you don't know yeah, what you're I doing. Mean, you need to preach that at the churches all day long. We got people. Slow your role. It doesn't mean you don't need yeah, to be involved. It just yeah. means you can be really careful about it. Right. Like I don't need a compassionate doctor when I'm sick. I would like compassion, yeah, but even yeah, more, yeah. I'd like you to know what you're doing before you put needles or pills in my body. And agree more. So another principle that emerges in that is we immediately say, okay, if this is what the neighborhood is saying, we know that it way outpaces our expertise. We then turn to those who have it and say, we can't do this. Will you please come do it? Because mm-hmm. we prefer not to, to be honest with you, because it's really complicated and very expensive. But the people who do this for a living wouldn't do it in our neighborhood because there's just not enough revenue to make wow. it, not enough square footage or revenue to make it viable for them as a business. They're like, okay, well, neighbors desire it. The experts, you know, or won't do it. Can mm-hmm. we? Right. So then we form a group of people who have the knowledge and expertise to figure out, can we put a plan in place to make this viable? Right. Yeah. And so this has been, you know, eight plus years kind of in the making, but about six or seven years ago is when we opened the doors to it. And Carver Market has been this small scale, right size scale for the neighborhood that we're in grocery store where there are affordable, healthy options. Mm-hmm. And we run it. So it's Carver Market. It's not FCS's ministry mark, right? It's not a justice mark. Like we're very deliberate mm-hmm. about we don't want anyone mm-hmm. to feel like they should just walk like that. There's some sort of charity case for like, no. Neighborhoods deserve grocery stores. We're not doing something yeah. for family heroic. Like this is just something that should exist. Yeah. The market won't do it. Somebody has to. So we put that in place and it's probably about 80% profitable and 20% subsidized because the market won't do it. And free food like pantries isn't the thing we need to do either. Like we need uh-huh. a business for the sake of this neighborhood, right? And so we call it Carver Market because the cluster of schools nearby is the Carver High School cluster. Um, and so we're trying to name it, identify it by the people in the place. That, yeah. And when you walk in, it's like, you know, like it's one of the only places you can shop within walking distance of our neighborhood where there's not, you know, plexiglass or bars between the person, uh, you know, buying something and, and selling it to them. Right. And so you, yeah. you again, and just everything about the environment, we're trying to communicate, you belong, this is for you. This is relational welcoming space. And so it's been, you know, it's been this journey of saying like, how do we not start with organizations, start with a yeah. neighborhood ecosystem of neighborhood and then figure out what's next out of that. Right. Cause we didn't say 10 years ago, you know what, we should start a grocery store. Right. right, right. And a lot of the things that we've got blueprints and architectural plans for over the next two to five years, like five years ago, we weren't going, Oh, we want to go get into that. It's like, no, it, like as the neighbor, like it's this constant commitment mm-hmm. to the, the place, to the process, to determine what we do and then finding the partners that can make it feasible, viable. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's that's so well said. I think you're right. Like in this type of work, there can become this like very dangerous line of like not wanting things to get better sometimes for the people that we're quote unquote serving because we like have this deep desire and need either to one, please the donors, which happens a lot in the nonprofit world or two, please our ego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like we end up like 
creating or perpetuating like the very thing that we supposedly are trying to remove. Yeah. Which again, yeah. it goes back to maybe some of that that savior complex and mm-hmm. you know all of that. And so it can be very dangerous if we're yeah. not doing oh, yeah. that internal work. Then, like you know, thought experiment for our our friends who are listening. Like if you're in the nonprofit world, think about whatever your mission is, whatever you do. And if you're in the nonprofit world, you're probably like a lot of nonprofits, like every year, you're like, oh, we made it. <laughs> we barely right. got by. We tend to be resource strapped. Let's pretend that a nonprofit moves in right across the street from you mm. and they have twice the resources, twice the capacity, twice the staffing ability, twice the building. And not only are they just better resourced, they're just better at it. Right. And they're just more successful at it. And if you have to shut down because of that, do you mourn or do you celebrate? Hmm. I know it's not that easy, hmm. but just, as, just yeah. for the sake of the thought experience, if it's better for your neighborhood, you should be celebrating. Mm-hmm. You ought to be the first ones on your social media saying, you know, if you're religious, thank you, Jesus. Mm-hmm. That, like, because like if South Atlanta, where we are now, no longer needs FCS, right? Because the kind of equitable and just development and resources and opportunities are coming to that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. We won't mourn that. Like at some level, we wish we didn't have a role, right? Because if if our systems worked for everybody, mm-hmm. regardless of income or race or background, FCS wouldn't exist, right? And so like, and that's that hard principle of saying, if we place the neighborhood's well-being above our own, if a nonprofit in your neighborhood got the grant that you went for and you didn't get it, but they're going to leverage that money for the good of your neighborhood. Can you celebrate yeah. them? Like if you think like in business terms, like our primary customer is the wrong one for too many nonprofits. Like your primary customer that you're seeking the good of is not you and your institution It's not your ongoing like survival, right? It is certainly not your donors. And I think for a lot of nonprofits, the primary customer is the donor and it is yeah. not the, the primary customer we would say is the neighborhood and the neighbors, right? And yeah. if, if things are improving for them, whatever that might mean for us, like that's the moment of celebration, right? Mm. Uh, and that's just a hard, hard shift, I think, for kind of the traditional mentality that brings us into nonprofit work. Yeah, no, you're mm. right. And again, it just keeps going back to like that internal, like honesty and internal work in ourselves. Cause there, mm-hmm. there is, I think like, the beautiful thing is like that there is this innate desire for us to want to give back as humans yeah. want to yeah. like, help in whatever way that is. Mm-hmm. But you're right. There's that dangerous line that if we're not careful, if we don't have accountability, yeah. if we're not healthy, like we can get into like really yeah. sticky situations and like that is not good for anybody. Yeah. So the, the division of FCS that I get to lead is the training consulting side that works with other organizations and other places. And as we walked with leaders and organizations through like a transformation process of kind of finding healthier, more robust, impactful ways of doing this work, every single one at some level has lost somebody that's been a supporter, volunteer, donor, something along the way, right? And oftentimes their pushback is not centered on what's happening to the community. It centers on what's happening to the position they used to hold, right? Yeah. And like part of the work we do is helping like coach and prepare leaders to do that compassionately, to do it well, to do it thoughtfully. But the reality is like people's need to be needed is not the mission. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I find that what I'm contributing is replaced by something better. Yeah. Uh, okay. Again, what's driving me to be here? Is it the neighborhood? Is it the neighbors? Or is it just my need to be needed? Is it my need to be donated? Yeah. 
wherever that's coming from, which again is a part of the hard on turnover, right? Right. If you're upset by these changes, what's that about? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because because we work with a lot of leaders who are really passionate and ready to like pull the pin and change everything tomorrow. Yeah. And we're like, oh, chill out. Like I agree that the changes you want to make are good changes, but it's going to have more negative yeah. results yeah. if we don't make, if we don't do this well, right? And so we coach them to do it really well. But at some mm-hmm. level, people that are within that system, there are going to be people who push back, people who leave, people get frustrated. And for those people, it's like you got to do that work. Like, what is this about for you? Yeah, because if you're here for the neighborhood, then this ought to be something that you're cheering for. Yeah, you're right. And be prepared to lose donors. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. And the good news is, and like we've also found that when you make a move to this deeper, longer term, kind of more sustainable, harder, but more complex work, you will lose some folks, but you actually end up attracting folks Mm. who tend to come in with more at the table because they are thinking, I don't want to just give resources to people who are kind of spinning the wheel of resource distribution. Like they're looking for impactful ways to give. And like you start proving that we're going after some real big things here. You'll start to recruit those people as well. So, but there's always that middle zone of like the loss (laughs) that people have to manage and deal with. And there's been a few leaders who's going to be like, hang on, just, just hang on. You're on the right path. I know it sucks to lose them, but like you're starting to to catch the attention of those who will partner with you in a bigger way. So just, you know, stick with it. But yeah, you definitely lose. But are our donors our primary customer, right? Or are the yeah. volunteers? Like who's yeah. who's yeah. the we 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 live to serve? But no, that's good. I appreciate that honesty. You mentioned you do consulting. Tell us a little more about that and then the other ways that people can get involved with what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, our team does the training consulting work and there's a variety of things that we do. Primarily what we want to help people do is to name their place, like what is the neighborhood of concern mm-hmm. versus just what is the issue I'm concerned about in some broad generic way, but like, mm-hmm. let's help yeah. name your footprint, your place, and then let's work together. Our process is three phases. We do assessment first because okay. you don't know what's going on. Then you like, I don't care how compassionate you are, how urgent it feels like you have to assess first mm-hmm. uh, and you create alignment. Like our the residents in this neighborhood and the stakeholders of this neighborhood, are they in agreement over what the priorities for the future are? And then we move to activation, right? So some people want like, they're sick of things not changing. And so they yeah. say, well, well, Loveland Center, come help us like for sure. activate something that will lead to change. Like, oh, that's phase three. Like number one, we got to gather the neighborhood yeah. and do some real assessment. So, so we have a number of tools and processes about what we lead, either individual leaders or organizations. And we also do like two year long cohorts with multiple sectors from the same neighborhood kind of working together. So there's lots of ways that we walk along, but we really want to commit number one, commit to place and then figure out how do we do some assessment alignment, then activation in those places. Okay. Awesome. And then what is the best way to get a hold of y'all? Yeah. Just in your posting and communication, if you just want to put our website on there, there's plenty of ways to kind of link up with us and we spend a lot of time just doing like a half hour, what we call a discovery session. Like, tell us who you are and what you're working on and what are some of the, the things that you're hopeful for, aspiring for, pain points you're feeling, and just for us to begin to figure out if, if we could potentially be a good partner for them. So, um, yeah, just I think a link to our website, probably a good, good, easy place to start. Perfect. Which is fcsministries.org, right? Yes. Yes. Perfect. Well, awesome. What is one thing that you'd want listeners to take with them today? I would hope like, so we've talked about the really big, complex, like generations long transformations that our world demands from us. 
what precedes any and all of that is that commitment to proximity and relationship. Even when people buy into our comprehensive holistic development model, they will still resist the secret sauce, which is proximity, right? Mm. Uh, that one of our mantras is that change will happen at the pace of trust. Mm. And try as you might, you cannot outrun trust. And so if there's a one thing, if there's kind of a starting point, I would say, you know, sitting on the front porch with somebody, if you can't live into that, you know, sharing meals with people, if you can't live into that, then the really big stuff won't come either. Mm. We do some assessments around the way programs are structured And it's funny that there's a couple of indicators that almost one shows up really high and one shows up really low. Mm -hmm. The one that often shows up really high is that leaders and organizations are committed to cultural competence. Like we're going to study and get training on how to work across economic and or racial lines. Right. Mm -hmm. But one of the indicators that usually ends up really low is the one around friendship. Hmm. You've been trained to do kind of cross-cultural work. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you eating dinner with? Yeah. And so I would say there's the one thing that's the proximity, like you got to begin there. Like that's the place where credibility is built. Trust is built. Mm. Uh, knowledge and insight is going to come out of that more than anything else. And so I'd say the, the commitment to proximity is the way to go. Mm, that's so good. I, we did an episode with Chuck Mingo about racial reconciliation mm. and he's a pastor of mega church in Cincinnati. Mm. And they did like a informal poll. I know, I think it was like 70% of people had never had another race over for dinner. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah and I was yeah. just like, wow. Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's the, uh, you have to Google the actual quote where it may be Romero who said it, but it's like, you say you love and want to serve the poor, name them, right? Yeah. So it's a sense of like, all right you know, your worldview is going to be shaped by the world you can view from your front porch, right? Like where you you live, where you walk, where you shop, where you eat, like Mm -hmm. who's in your kids' lives, who's in your life. Like these are the things that are going to shape us. And again, we would say we got to do the really big, complex development stuff like that. Problems are too deep and too complex to just do some simple charitable actions. Mm -hmm. But even with all that in mind, the the relational proximate stuff is really where it all begins and hopefully where it ends, right? Like the end goal is people have more stuff. The end goal is a beloved community, right? That we're we're driving and flourishing together. Thank you so much for joining us today. You can reach Sean and his team at theluptoncenter.org or fcsministries.org. I'll be sure to put that in the show notes as well at lapointfoundation.life or you can reach me directly at Callie at lapointfoundation.org. Until next time, keep on fighting for justice.